0: Is quite a crucial material in that whenever there's an algae outbreak in reservoirs it's added to the reservoir to soak up some of those chemicals that the algae produce it's also used in all of the gold mines to recover gold it's used for scrubbing gases before they're admitted to
1: the atmosphere or cleaning up spills after they've happened that's dr lewis dunnigan on why we should be taking notice of activated carbon It's something we've all heard about. We put it on our skin. We use it to purify our water, but it also plays a critical role in many industrial operations. And yet, for a product we associate with cleaning and purifying, activated carbon has a dirty record.
0: It's this kind of odd oxymoron with activated (laughs) carbon in that it really is used for a lot of vital environmental processes, but the way that it's being made is doing a lot of harm. And fundamentally, we knew that, yes, switching to a more sustainable option was a bonus, but we needed to look at a way that was more economical at
1: scale. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and today we're joined from Melbourne by Dr Dunagan, a chemical engineering PhD graduate whose research has seen him go head-to-head with the environmental contradictions of activated carbon and realize commercial ambitions along the way. Join us as we follow this journey of scientific discovery, where Lewis reveals how his startup company, BiGem, is using activated carbon to turn waste into worth. This is the Discovery Pod. Hi Lewis, and welcome to the Discovery Pod. Thanks for having me. So you're a recently graduated PhD student from the University of Adelaide and now Chief Executive Officer of a startup by And I understand kind of you're really into activated charcoal. So what is activated charcoal and what's it used for? Yeah,
0: so it's basically a material that's been made to be extremely porous. So it's a little bit like a sponge, but the pores are on sort of the, the microscopic level. And because it's so porous, it has a very high internal surface area. So essentially, one gram of activated carbon has around 1,000 square meters of surface area. And that makes it really good as a filter.
1: So hang on, hang on. Yeah. One gram of activated charcoal is 1,000 square meters of surface area. So what's that? how many football pitches is that?
0: Well, that's a good analogy. So we usually say one teaspoon of carbon is the equivalent surface area to one football pitch.
1: So one teaspoon of activated carbon is equivalent to the surface area of a football pitch. Correct, yes. That's, okay. that, that's the most uh, logical analogy that we can use. And where, where does that surface area sit? Does It does, obviously doesn't sit just on the surface. It sits no. in these pores within the, the matrix of the carbon, does it? Yeah, exactly. So you've
0: really got pores inside of there that range anywhere from sort of like nanometer size all the way up to a thousand or ten ten thousand times larger than that obviously still smaller than than we can see with our sort of the naked eye but on microscopic levels quite big differences in their relative
1: sizes yeah so you've got this kind of microscopic TARDIS, <laughs> uh, it's small movie. on the outside and the massive on the inside, right? So yeah, that, that must have uh, application. So what, 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 what do we use activated carbon for? And it's not a new thing, is it? I mean, we've been using it for centuries, I guess.
0: That's right, and I think the first patents for its production are from the sort of nineteen twenties nineteen thirties or maybe even earlier there's There is some evidence that humans had been making charcoal and using it for some applications prior to that, but it really found its calling as a really effective way to filter water, so we knew that you could take water that was contaminated with with different chemicals and you could pass it through activated carbon and because of those pores, it acts a bit like a sponge, and it soaks up those unwanted chemicals, but lets the clean water pass through it I mean that's really how it became commercialized and aside from that, there was other applications basically using the same kind of process, but you know purifying gases and purifying soils and things like that. So it all comes down to that porosity making it a really good filter,
1: yeah. So by passing either liquids or uh, gases uh, through the activated carbon, they kind of adhere to this massive surface area that's there within the molecule and then basically purifies anything you pass through it. I seem to remember using activated carbon in my PhD, which is a few years ago now, and we used it to clean up some of the more noxious chemicals that we used within the lab. So it's incredibly effective, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's been around for a long time and... The reason why it's so popular is it has a really excellent performance to price ratio. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are other man-made materials out there or emerging materials that perhaps can exceed the performance of activated carbon, but no one up until this point has been able to make them at scale affordably. So if you're a customer and you have the choice between something that's maybe twice as good as activated carbon but it's five times the price you're always going to go for something that's that's cheaper and you get that better performance
1: ratio and and harnessing something which is naturally out there i know particularly with native foods here in australia a lot of native foods in australia are quite astringent or very bitter to taste and what we've seen is there's a lot of preparations which kind of cook the foods together with kind of burnt husk or other burnt objects that have obviously activated charcoal in. And it helps to remove some of those toxins or some of the more astringent flavors of foods. So as you say, certainly it was patented in the 1920s, but you know a large number of communities have realized the application of activated charcoal for quite a long period of time. So what are we using it for today? What What are our applications of activated charcoal?
0: We really, in our business, we split it into the consumer and the business-to-business or B2B markets. The consumer one's a lot smaller, but you will kind of see it in household water filters, so you know like Puritap or Brita filters, they'll have activated carbon segments in it. There was a a slightly odd craze a few years ago where activated carbon was being added to a lot of foods. Instagram is blowing up with black looking food and beauty products.
1: Activated charcoal works by trapping toxins and chemicals in the gut. It's
0: what health trend fanatics claim to be using to detox, brighten skin and whiten their teeth. We still don't know for sure if it really does all that it claims to do. It's
1: just really, I think, a trend. There isn't any Science, unfortunately, to back up these claims. That's not being done so much anymore. So what Um, was it used for? Was it uh, to soak up the toxins in your body? Was that uh, rationale?
0: That was the rationale. I think a lot of the time it was just because it gave the food a very dark black color, which was obviously what people were trying to achieve. But whether whether that was the most effective use of it or not, that's probably up for debate. But certainly in the consumer side, the water treatment and perhaps in the, the sort of cosmetics products, those are the two where people might have seen them the most. And there's a lot of activated carbon, activated charcoal based uh, cosmetics products out there as well. Yeah. But really, the major driver of of activated carbons in that sort of industrial B2B side of things, where in Australia, it's, it's really there's a few different applications that dominate it. So... Industrial water treatment, it's used to obviously purify them in the treatment plants, but it's also used to, whenever there's an algae outbreak in reservoirs, it's added to the reservoir to soak up some of those chemicals that the algae produce. And somewhere like South Australia has big problems with things like that. It's also used in all of the gold mines to recover gold. So it's a very crucial part of the actual gold extraction process. And then in chemical manufacturing, we we really rely on it, or a lot of companies rely on it to to meet their environmental emission standards. So for scrubbing gases before they're kind of admitted to the atmosphere or cleaning up, even cleaning up spills after they've happened. Um, Hmm. Yeah, so it's it's
1: quite a crucial material in that regard. So it's one of these processes which has kind of become embedded within the way we do business, uh, both for heavy industry and at home. And just a side question, is that charcoal that you produce, is that the same as biochar that is now being used in agricultural systems to improve carbon sequestration?
0: Not quite. It's a question I get asked a lot. And actually I did my PhD predominantly on biochar and we know a lot of people in that industry. There are some key differences though. So the first thing about biochar is making biochar is a one-step process. Activated carbon is essentially taking biochar or charcoal and then subjecting it to that environment to create the porosity. So it's quite funny in that, obviously, Biochar is seeing a bit of an emergence as as Mm -hmm. a, a fertilizer right now. But, you know, for the pattern that I talk about from 100 years ago, it's making activated carbon in two steps, and the first step is making Biochar. So the process to make it has been around for a long time. I think the key difference here is that activated carbon is one further step And it's slightly more complex in the way that it's made because you do need to really kind of maximize the internal surface area. And because of that, it does command a higher price and the applications are quite different to biochar. So no one adds activated carbon in any kind of scale to the soil for increasing the soil productivity, but you wouldn't use biochar as a water filter. So they look the same, but there's some microscopic differences between the two of
1: them. Understood.
0: Activated carbon can purify air and water, clean environmental spills, and remediate polluted soil. But until now, making it required burning masses of fossil fuels at extreme
1: temperatures, great cost, and using huge volumes of water. An experiment is underway that could hold the solution to Salem's water woes. Small amounts of something called activated powdered carbon are mixed with river water before any other treatment. In order to create activated carbon, what we need to do is increase the effective surface area of the charcoal. Activated charcoal is made specifically for use as a medicine and purifier. With some extra heat, the surface area expands and it develops internal spaces, also called pores, which then can trap chemicals and dirt. We've been using activated carbon for 100 years, and yet we're still finding novel ways to incorporate it into both our lives and major industries. It seems a little goes a long way, and it's likely we're going to see many more applications of this material. But Lewis isn't advocating for charcoal buns. He's changing how activated carbon is made. New ways to make activated carbon only matter if the old ways have drawbacks to overcome. And usually activated carbon is a waste product. So what's the issue here? And I suspect that your new company might be doing things slightly differently. So let's get into how you make activated carbon and what what you're doing differently in this space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this is really where we originated from looking at new ways of making it. The original way that's been around for 100 years or so is really to take a carbon rich material, which predominantly is still coal. Mm-hmm. And then you basically heat it up to a high temperature. You drive off some of the, the lighter con- components of it, so moisture and, and, and things like that. And then the activation stage is generally heating up steam to 1000 degrees Celsius and reacting it with that coal or whatever carbon-containing material you're using. And the steam plus carbon reaction is where you start to generate the porosity that gives the activated carbon its surface area. The steam high-temperature steam method is really the most commonly used one in industry. There is alternative methods where you can actually use really strong acids or bases to achieve the same effect that steam has, that is increasingly dying out because there's a lot of environmental issues associated with using strong acids at that kind of scale. Mm. So we kind of realized in our research group that heating up steam to 1,000 degrees is an extremely energy intensive process. (laughs) And Uh, using coal as well. You're not talking about the most sustainable processes on earth, are you? (laughs) No, no. It's this kind of odd sort of oxymoron with activating carbon in that it it, it really is used for a lot of vital environmental processes, but the way that it's being made is doing a lot of harm. Mm. And it was something that we kind of we realised, and it, fundamentally we knew that yes, switching to a more sustainable option was a bonus, but we we needed to look at a way that was more economical at scale. So go on, Lewis. What did
1: you do? What did you invent? Well, we'd invented what we call low
0: temperature activation. Now, obviously, I can't go into too many details about it, but essentially, we we basically figured out that you could use alternative gases to steam. And if you blended them in the right ratios, you could actually do the activation at temperatures as low as 250 degrees Celsius. Hmm. And those gases are, are readily available and they're quite cheap. And Uh, I guess another significant bonus for us is that we don't need any new equipment to do it. So we're really using the same kind of equipment that the, the steam activation companies are using, but the conditions inside it are a lot more delicate and we can make activated carbon as good or better than they are with their steam method. But we save significant amounts of energy as well as carbon by doing it the way that we do it. So, Yes, we could theoretically use coal, and and I guess back in the research stages, we wanted to see how our product compared, but we sort of realized that um, that wasn't the path that we wanted to go down, and we, we developed the technology to be able to use renewable raw materials rather than, than fossil fuels. So we worked hard to be able to utilize what we would call biomass, but Essentially waste products from from agricultural and, and forestry industries. So really focusing on things like nutshells, wood chips, as well as some other sort of more random ones like like sugarcane, sugarcane bagasse, but really looking at what's around us in Australia, what can be scaled overseas when the time's right. And those were the materials
1: that we really focused hard on. Mm. So you've you've made a new plant that uh, operates at a lower temperature using slightly different gases and then also can potentially process agricultural waste as well. And is it possible for those plants to be established close to agricultural waste product source as well?
0: Well, that's something that we realised quite quickly it essentially had to happen. In order to kind of make the plant economical, we knew we needed to have high throughput capacities and significant run times. We We couldn't operate plants for three or four days a week and shut it down and then kind of expect to get the return on investment that, that we would want. Uh, And also as an engineer, I knew that there was a lot of risk in constantly shutting down and starting up manufacturing plants. So we really designed the process to be able to run 24 Mm seven. And we didn't want to kind of go around into the field, collecting a ton here and a ton there of, of various raw materials. In order to have the uptime that we need, we needed to base the facilities next to where the wastes are being produced at the right kind of scale. Yeah. So that can be things like sawmills that are running all the time, or it can be plants where they crack nuts. So they're removing the shell from the actual nut itself. And it really makes the logistics a lot easier, but also allows you to kind of achieve the run times that you need. And that's really what we do.
1: Yeah, so you're turning waste into into money effectively because it's a value-added product that you're producing from what would otherwise be disposed of.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, some of the raw materials we use, I mean, as part of the business, we always try and understand exactly what residual value they may have. And even materials like nutshells that may appear to be waste products, and a lot of the time they are just literally waste products. There are times where during a drought, they are sold as cattle feed. So they do have Mm -hmm. long-term historical prices that we have to factor into our models. But we don't have a business where we're essentially being paid to take waste. But we do obviously have to factor in some residual costs to those raw materials.
1: And also, you've not only been dealing with agricultural wastes and purification processes, but you've also started turning your attention to plastic waste as well. Maybe tell us a bit about that. (music) In an effort to clean up its environment, China has banned the import of 24 types of foreign waste. Chinese companies were importing and processing nearly half the world's plastics and paper recycling. But in January, China's government, in effect, banned the import of recyclable waste. When China stopped recycling Australian waste, it was a wake up call for the local industry. Before
0: the ban, Australia was exporting 1.25 million tonnes to China annually. Now, waste is piling up.
1: The supplies are constant, but the demand's been wiped out by about half. There There is a real challenge to find a market for
0: those recyclables in both the short term and the longer term. Yeah, we really kind of look for what is a viable raw material for us to use in our process. And around the time that there were so many issues with Australia sending waste plastics overseas, and the recyclers were dealing with a lot of contamination problems, Mm. we did sort of think about, well, our process may be viable for those types of plastics and so these are the soft plastics that we've heard a lot about recently we have done a little bit with them we mostly focused on pet polystyrene type plastics there is a bit of a challenge with those soft plastics in terms of from an engineering point of view kind of getting them to flow through a system well because they probably have a tendency to get snagged up but we Theoretically, because the structure is so similar, it it would work as well. But we successfully demonstrated in in a pilot trial that we were able to produce good quality activated carbon from waste plastics. But obviously, as a startup, you have to dedicate your resources where they're going to be their most effective. And for us, we feel like the agricultural and forestry residues and wastes are where we're going
1: to be focusing our attention in sort of next couple of years. So we can take the waste products that clutter our world and through the activated carbon process turn them into something that can clean out air and water. And by starting his business BiGen in 2017, Lewis is now making business out of making the world a cleaner place.
0: The state government and an emerging tech company have unveiled ambitions to turn the nation's agricultural waste into a money spinner. Activated carbon sells for around $2,000 a tonne, but local startup BiGen only pays $50 a tonne for
1: the waste it's made from. The developers say within a year, they hope to be doing the same thing with plastic, helping South Australia to lead the way in solving a global waste problem we're looking not only to expand and work with many different industries but to also integrate with communities and help solve localized environmental problems we close that loop between buying a product and throwing it away this is called the circular economy nothing is wasted and everything goes into making everything else it's a new way of doing business lewis's product can even find treasure in the mining industry so he's really struck gold in this innovation The work remaining is to take it to the proof-of-concept stage and show that activated carbon can revolutionise the circular economy. You're obviously not from Australia originally, and how, how did you get into a kind of PhD in this space and then start on the road towards commercialization. And how easy was that? How how did you find that coming into that kind of new domain as as a researcher? Tell us a bit about your background and your story, really.
0: So I'm I'm originally from Edinburgh in Scotland. I did my master's degree at the University of Edinburgh. And when I was doing the final year of my master's, I had the opportunity to come over to Adelaide University to essentially do a six month uh, research placement Back then, I had a different speciality. I focused mainly on molecular simulations, but there was a little bit of a crossover because it was molecular simulations of gas storage in porous materials like activated carbon. So I, I developed a little bit of an interest in them back then. But I was offered the chance, once I finished my master's degree in Edinburgh, to come back to do a PhD. And it was offered the scholarship and came over and... I had a choice of a few different projects, but the one that interested me the most was research focusing on on biochar production. I knew that I wanted to kind of focus more on process engineering rather than kind of modeling. And yeah, I got started on that and found it really interesting. And I was lucky in that in my research group, there was another researcher as well as my supervisor who were working on this new activation technology um, but more from sort of the fundamental chemistry and physics point of view. And together with my engineering background, we sort of looked at how could we scale this up because it was working so well on, on a very small scale. And yeah, we we realized that we had something of commercial value and actually it was my supervisor who signed us up for a company accelerator program called Innovise. Mm. And I was finishing my PhD around about that time and Decided that it would be good fun to have a go at, I guess, commercializing the technology. And we raised some money and kind of been going since then.
1: Great. It's a really nice story, actually. And it's a great opportunity, I think, for... PhD students and uh, also postdocs as well, you know, got deep domain expertise, pushing the boundaries of knowledge. And then, you know, as you say, putting it into something practical, not just theoretical, and then being given an opportunity to really drive that forward. Because often, you know, academics and professors, they just don't have time, right? Or they're, they're doing something else. But I think as a young researcher in the space, you might as well give it a crack. And you're at that moment, you're the world expert, right? In in that space. And if you've yes. got the interest in commercialization, you can really drive this forward. And where did you get the funding from? Was that federal or state or through some other companies and investors?
0: So the initial funding was from the university's commercial accelerator scheme, mm. as well as self Australian government funding. And yeah, we used that to, to build the pilot plan and start bringing on staff. And then a couple of years later, we raised funding from venture capital. So... Our 2020 round was about $1.2 million. And it's interesting, it's as a PhD researcher, any PhD researcher at the university really has a really unique knowledge set, knowledge of, I guess, whatever research item they're looking into. And for anyone who would be interested in, in starting a company, I think it's important to realize that. The researcher has the absolute fundamental and key knowledge in making the company a success. What I learned going through the process was you don't necessarily need to go into starting the company with extensive business background. There are ways and people that you can bring in to help you with that side of the business, but you're always going to have the really key technical knowledge that's required and that can't be learned from, I guess, any other way apart from just being stuck in it in your research during the PhD. So it's a really unique and advantageous position to be in. But I think it is really key that you identify where the gaps are probably on the commercial side of things and really look to bring in people to help support you and help you grow the business moving forward. So I, I think it is a really great opportunity for both PhD students and universities to really commercialise and, and monetize the research that they're doing because there's a lot of great research in the university.
1: And, you know, it's an exciting opportunity when you finish your postgraduate studies as well to move on to, you know, a new career in some practical applications. And I'm sure you'd be looking for a Series A and Series B investment within your company. It sounds like you've got a really kind of exciting product to bring to the market. But let's, let's imagine, Lewis, that uh, you know an investor rings you up tomorrow and says, uh, Lewis, you, you're doing great stuff here. I want to give you a huge investment to take it wherever you want. How will you take that forward and how will you make history?
0: Yeah, um, sounds like a great scenario. <laughs> You've
1: so, got to create the scenarios you want, right? So let's, uh, let, let's imagine what that's going to be look we
0: we, we've worked really hard in the last 12 months to to really identify i guess our strategy for the next five years and we've built a huge pipeline of projects with with customers and partners that will get us to where we want to be and i guess help us achieve our mission and we don't hide the fact like we we want to be the biggest activated carbon company in the world Mm. and but you need to think big and dream big in order to get there. And, you know, at the same time, if someone comes and gives you $100 million to help you achieve that, that money is not going to do much good if you don't have a really clear plan on how to use it. And there's plenty of examples in the startup world of companies that got too much funding too early and really didn't utilize it in a particularly productive way. So we kind of always plan for the worst and we plan for perhaps not being able to raise investment in the future. And we build our, our company to be very sustainable and, and scalable at the same time. But at the same time, you know, if someone came along and I guess offered us funding to help us achieve our mission, then we'd be able to utilize it on that pipeline of projects that we have. And we might get to that ultimate goal quicker than we would otherwise. So we would be very thankful for it. And we've certainly got a good plan to utilize it effectively.
1: Great. And I'm sure with that plan and focus, you'll find you'll get there quicker than you realise at the moment. Lewis, thanks very much. Thanks very much for going into the kind of microscopic wonders of activated carbon, but also allowing us to think big and dream big around the opportunities for that. Thanks, Lewis. No worries. Thank you. It's so exciting to hear just how quickly research can be taken from university labs to actively changing how we use, reuse and recycle our limited resources. BiGen is set to change an industry that provides a critical part of the sustainability equation, proving that you can do good while doing well. This story is an excellent example of how the flow of research creates opportunities and we can affect change from just about anywhere. Thank you to Lewis and his company for having the courage to take the leap from academia to business and all their supporters for backing the worthy cause. And thanks to you as well for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, rate us five stars, and while you're at it, why not share this episode with your friends and family? In our next episode, we're talking with Val Keynes from the Adelaide Business School about why diversity inclusion needs to be much more than just a box ticking exercise. Organisations have still tend to put a bit of a use by date on our heads Mm. in terms of our contribution. And so we still need to kind of really puzzle that out and think about what could late career look like. Val tells us to be courageous in our hiring and inclusion approaches in the workplace, from harnessing talent to understanding how to get the best from everyone. In the meantime, if you have a topic that you think we need to explore, you can get in touch with us at podcast.adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe and you're listening to The Discovery Pod. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide.
0: So, what do you want to know next?